0: Well, as we uh, look at the explosive power of the church, you know, you and I, with our Christian heritage here in America, there's a church on every corner. Most Christians have a plethora of Bibles at their house, different translations, um, various things. Some of you have about 20 Godspeak Bibles that you keep stealing and taking from here. Maybe you're selling them on eBay, we're buying them back, you sell them, you know, anyway. But it's not like that everywhere in the world, I want you to know. And I was reading this week an article that really struck a nerve for me, knowing what's going on, and a little bit more maybe because of how I read and how I investigate what's happening in the global cause for Jesus. And I was reading this story uh, about a group of people That you see, in their nation, if you are a Christian or get caught with a Bible or meeting for church, it's an automatic 15-year prison sentence. Many of the people die in prison because the prison conditions are so terrible. And that is in modern-day North Korea. And uh, I read this article, which was uh, from 2018, just four years ago. A group of Christian believers in North uh, Korea, they show up as the sun's coming up, at a river bank and they bring all their uh, fishing gear like they're professional fishermen. And they get in this little boat, and they go out like they're going to fish for the day. And they row out to the middle of the, the river, and they have among them, you know, four or five of these believers, they have one tattered Bible, because not every Christian gets a Bible. And this Bible is the most precious thing to them. They pull it out of this duffel bag. It's, it's water-stained. It's dog-eared because of the uh, hiding and the abuse that it has to go through. And they open their Bible, and they begin to have a worship service in a boat, in a river, very quietly, so they don't end up in prison. And in this story, another boat starts approaching them, and immediately they think it's the the police that they've somehow figured it out. And it's one person in a boat, and as he comes up next to them, somehow he had discovered that they were Christians. And he rode out in his boat, and he said, I'm a Christian too, but I've brought you a new Bible. They were just radiant with joy. He took their old, tattered Bible, gave them a new Bible. Not one for each one of them, just a new Bible that can continue on. The bindings start falling apart and various things. And this guy went back to his room. Now, this guy is a criminal for Jesus. So if you want to break the law, I want you to be a criminal for Jesus. This is smuggling Bibles into North Korea is illegal. He can go to prison for 15 years. And he put this old Bible, he hid it in the, uh, in the hotel where he was staying in a dresser, he hid it under his clothes, and then he left for the day and he came back. Well, the uh, person that came and cleaned the room went all through his stuff and took the Bible, and he was, he was waiting for the police to come until the person came to him. And the person had been seeking God, and the person said, I've been praying for a Bible So he was also a criminal for Jesus. He's pillaging all the guy's stuff, goes through all of his clothing, and he finds this Bible and he takes it, and it was an answer to prayer. Only in a dark place like that are people so terrified of oppression because when you get rid of God and the oppressor rises, there's no hope for people. It is darkness. Now, this is an incredible case study In freedom and faith. Because in the North Korean War, America fought and at the 39th parallel made a stand so there's the DMZ or demilitarized zone. And uh, I I just spent time, actually I had dinner with the two-star general that's in South Korea in charge of the DMZ and, and an unusual set of circumstances just a couple of weeks ago. So I was grilling him with questions about everything, China, Taiwan, things that are, because he's a strategic liaison in that area for the military. And the crazy thing is, is that everybody in South Korea, that line was built. God was rejected, and the state and government communism became the, the supreme authority. In South Korea... The freedom that came from America helping them be a free people. The ingenuity that comes with freedom. The faith that comes with freedom and the opportunity to seek the Lord. This picture to me is one of the most stark contrasts. This is South Korea at night from space lit up. The black blob above the DMZ, you can see the very distinct DMZ. Everything north of that is North Korea. That's what it's like to live in an oppressive, godless society where tyranny reigns. The people are starving to death there. The hope that the church brings, whether it's a boat full of guys. Now, that guy that uh, brought the new Bible and then the the janitor of the hotel stole the old tattered Bible, He, he committed... To praying that the Lord would allow them to bring 100,000 Bibles into North Korea. Now they're taking their life in their hands. They can go to prison. It's very scary what they're doing. And they've almost got there in the last uh, few years. They've almost got 100,000 Bibles. God's word changes people's lives. In South Korea, 31% of the nation are Christians, 31%. At the turn of the 19th century in Korea, all of Korea, only 1% were Christians. America just allowing a people to be free in that country brought faith and freedom and ingenuity. I mean, they're rock stars on the tech world scene, not North Korea. There's no ingenuity coming out of North Korea. People are just trying to survive and get their belly full so they don't have to have hunger pains all night long. The hope that you have, that the gospel brings, is taken for granted among a soft, squishy, marshmallow version of Christianity in America. These people's lives are on the line. But we want to look this morning at Acts chapter 2 as we see the church is born and the explosive power of God's spirit. As we unpack really how all of this started in the last 2,000 years, How the Christian world, I want to encourage you, the latest statistic by Pew Research says 2.3 billion people are Christians in the world. A full third of the population of the world identifies with Jesus Christ. Now that's a lot of different denominations, whether all of them are born again or some of them are just traditional religious people. We don't have to unpack that. But the reality is the hope that we have and that people have in the Lord Jesus and the power of his spirit through the church. Let's stand and read this passage of scripture as we begin, starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 2, So we look at this explosive power as it's poured out. Somehow my pages are glued together. That's because a preacher spits a lot when he preaches, that's what happens. Follow along with me. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and was confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, "'Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language, in which we were born?' Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them, notice, we hear them speak in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. We were all amazed... So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. They're drunk at nine in the morning. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and the power of your spirit to change our lives. Lord, you have changed us forever. And you are changing us from glory to glory. And we pray that today would be part of that process. Lord, we pray for those broken-hearted families in Texas. Our hearts go out to them. We pray that, Lord, you promise that you are the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So would you comfort them, Lord, in their, their grief and their sorrow. Lord, we pray that you would be with Pastor Rob as he preaches in Michigan and bring him home safely. Thank you, Lord. Now give us eyes to see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 <coughs> You may be seated. Excuse me. The day the church is born, supernatural things happen, and it was according to God's timetable. It says when, the, when Pentecost had fully come. Pentecost is the second feast of the Jewish feast that follows Passover. Jesus fulfilled Passover as the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And the feast of first fruits, or... Um, Feast of Weeks, as it's known, fifty means a uh, penta means fifty days. So fifty days later, and this is when the church is born, and this also fulfills the feast that the ingathering gathering had begun. Three thousand souls are going to be believers by the end of this day, and Peter's bold preaching, empowered by the Spirit. Now, the way the Lord d- gathered this crowd together, and you know thousands of people, it was probably in the temple courts connected to, though it says here, as we we see, they they sat, uh, they were, you know, seated, they could have been at Solomon's porch in that area of the temple, because it has to be an area where thousands of people can hear and see. And the sound of the mighty rushing wind that came, and the tongues of fire that were on each one of them, supernaturally, so there are three supernatural things going on, a mighty rushing wind that was from God, tongues of fire upon their heads, and then they each spoke a foreign language that they had never learned, and they were worshiping and praising God in that foreign language. Now, because it was Passover, or excuse me, because it was Pentecost, people from all over the Mediterranean, you saw the long list of countries that were represented. These are all different languages and dialects and accents, and yet the 120, the Galileans that were there, they knew they were from Galilee. They probably dressed distinctively, but we also know that from the passage about Peter denying the Lord, they said, you were with Jesus because you're a Galilean, your speech betrays you. The people from Galilee, the bulk of Jesus' disciples, had a very distinct accent. You know, when you travel America, you can find out all the different accents where you go. We're all speaking the same language, we think. And, but when you go certain places, it, it's hard to tell. Right? You can talk to those who are in Boston and you can get a cup of coffee for a quarter. Or you can go to Wisconsin and get some cheese. You can go to upstate Minnesota and do oofta, you know. You betcha. So you go to all these different places and it's very distinct. Well, for Israel it was the same, but also more so for the Mediterranean area. In all these languages, one of the most mind blowing things to them. Imagine you're a person that was here today. It's 9 in the morning. Say this is the Pentecost scene. Let's say you're from a remote village in the mountains of France. You speak French, but it's a very unique dialect in that rural village. You come to America for the first time. You don't speak English whatsoever, you have a a family member that's giving you a tour of America, and you came to church today, even though there's going to be no translation, and here, everything that I'm saying right now, you have no clue, but then the mighty rushing wind comes, then the tongues of fire, and then somebody across the room is praising God in a distinct dialect from your French rural village, and blowing your mind and you're looking at him, and it's a surfer dude from Malibu, and you know he didn't grow up in your village. (laughs) Right? There's something very distinct about him. It's like, that that, that guy did not come from my village. And the awe, the connection of your language or your people. When I went to Israel years ago, and I spent 22 uh, days in the Middle East, and I'm hanging out with Israelis and, and all of these things kind of on a tour of my own, And when I came back home, and the guard, this guy, he's like 6'3", about 2.30, big, beefy guy standing like this, as I exited the airplane in Atlanta, and uh, as he's coming in, he's like, welcome home. I almost cried and kissed the guy. I was so excited to hear somebody from America address me in such a way after being in a foreign land. There's a connectivity that comes, and supernaturally, God brings all of these things together for the day of the birth of the church. These people are from all over, so as Peter shares the gospel with them, what's going to happen? They're all going to be filled with the Spirit, and they're all going to go back to their towns, and they're going to tell everybody about Jesus all over the Mediterranean. So the church was born that day, 2,000 years ago, and here we are meeting on a Sunday morning, and God's word and his truth are continuing on through the power of the Spirit of God. You see, it is impossible to live the Christian life without this power. You and I are very attuned to power, right? You're most attuned to power with your cell phone because some of you forgot to plug it in last night and it's blinking right now. You're just almost dead and you're waiting to get that text because you're going to go get some brunch later and oh no, I'm going to miss out. You get This lifeline of your phone that you do everything. I email on my phone. I text on my phone. I get the news on my phone. I listen to messages. I mean, I live in this little box, right? But what's it need? It needs power. I have to plug it in. Now, when you travel a lot and you don't have access, uh, I'm always afraid of running out of battery. Anybody got that phobia? I got the phobia. I can't run out of battery power. Because I always picture myself, I land in New York and I need an Uber at 12 o'clock at night at the airport. Right? And my battery's dead. What am I gonna do? So I have the portable battery that has four phone charges, so I can, I'm just plugged in wherever I go. (laughs) I gotta have the power. We're very attuned to that. But in our Christian life, you realize that your life is that way. You cannot live the instruction of loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself, and loving your enemies and pray for those who abuse you, and walk in love without supernatural power. Because naturally, I am not a God lover. Naturally, I do not love other people. I'm a self-centered jerk. Naturally, I want to punch my enemy in the face. These are all, so, and my wife says it best, without Jesus, Rick is an absolute jerk, Now, she's so sweet and blonde in her big blue eyes. She's so adorable. And when she says it, it just cuts me to the heart because it's so true. (laughs) She knew me before Jesus. She knows me after Jesus. We've been married 36 years. And we were seeing these headlines about Johnny Depp and Amber, you know, uh, heard, which is like craziness. And and, and my wife just looked at me, and she said, Any wife could destroy her husband. And I said, You're so right, babe. Are we okay? (laughs) the reality is, I can't be who God wants me to be without the supernatural power. I am weak. I am helpless. I want to do good things. I want to be a better version of myself, but I just lack the power. God gives us the power of the Holy Spirit, and this promise is for us and it's to our children, and it's to our grandchildren, and it's to everybody that will listen. As many as will call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved, and you can plug into this power through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what the church is all about. It's about plugging into power to change me, to make me a version of God uh, that God wants me to be that Jesus can begin to live his resurrection life through me. Now, it's understandable that everybody there, the massive crowd, is confused, right? There's all these different languages that are going on. And I don't know if you've... uh, We've had a lot of people come from different backgrounds to our church. You might be from a Baptist background that is cessationist, meaning that they believe that the sign gifts no longer exist. But when the Bible came into canonization, they say, that which is perfect has come looking at a passage in 1 Corinthians 13, which the passage is really speaking about heaven, but they twist it to make it about the word of God, that when you get to heaven, you won't need tongues or all these different gifts of the Holy Spirit. Is that your background? We won't have you raise your hand. Now, then we have the Pentecostals, that it's all about the Holy Spirit, but you got to say the Holy Ghost. And when you say it, you got to emphasize it, brother. Brother. Because I got the anointing coming down on me now. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Okay, all right. So depending on what your style is and your background, I enjoy a more conversational style to talk to my friends about the love of Jesus. rather No, anointed slapping you in the forehead. But as this unfolds, There's a lot of confusion surrounding tongues, just like it was for these people, right? Notice a couple of things I want you to know. It tells us, you'll hear some preachers say, and these people were speaking in tongues. They were preaching a sermon to these people in their language. No, 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 no. That's not what it says. What does it say in verse 11? It says, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. They're worshiping, God, you're so amazing in the heavens and the earth. You're the king of kings and you're the Lord of lords. Tongues, according to Paul the Apostle, who unpacks up more than anybody else in First Corinthians, says tongues is always God's word. It is always worship and praise to God. Now, if you want to be entertained sometimes, you flip through the channel and get across some really wild Christian TV. Have you ever watched for entertainment? There's some really crazy things on there. And you'll see preachers sometimes preaching in tongues. Now, They're saying that this is a message, but tongues is always to God. Paul the Apostle says it. It's always worshiping. By the way, if you're getting nervous, some of you are like, oh, no, something's coming. (laughs) You have a background where you're concerned or you're terrified because you've heard teaching like this. Even a very well-known preacher in Southern California has this mindset that these gifts are not for today. And if you speak in tongues, it is psychosomatic or it's demonic meaning that you're out of your mind and you've made it up, or it's demon possession or oppression or influence. I want you to know that neither one of those things are true. Uh, I personally speak in tongues weekly, daily in my own life, but you've never heard me do it in church because Paul the Apostle said, though I speak with tongues more than y'all, he was obviously from Texas, <laughs> and, and I probably, just because of my role, in, uh, I speak in tongues more than y'all or most of you, but he said, when I come to the church, I'd rather speak five intelligible words so you can understand what I'm saying, so that you can be built up and encouraged, right? So there's a place for that. In small prayer meetings or small groups, we have uh, speaking in tongues, interpretation, those things, all decently in order according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So not to make you nervous. So the Baptists come here, and they see some people raising their hands, and they go, oh, no, Martha, we're with a bunch of charismatics, Now, the Pentecostals come here, and because we're so subdued, they say, they're Baptists. So that means we have the perfect blend. I tell people, my grandfather was a Baptist, my dad was a Pentecostal, I'm a Bapticostal, I'm right in the middle, right? And I want to give you a, a simple adage that will help you go a long ways in your walk with the Lord. Have you ever went to a church, and they really are strong in teaching the Bible, but it seems like there's just no life? It's kind of dead orthodoxy. It's like great Bible teaching, but I don't know, it just doesn't seem very alive. And then you go to a church that's like swinging from the chandeliers and they're like having a crazy time and they never open the Bible. (laughs) They're just having, man, this is like an aerobics class for Jesus. Woo! (laughs) And so both of those are extremes. And I notice that most churches go to extremes. Why should it be that way? You see, the reality is this little adage will help you. All word and no spirit And you'll dry up. All spirit and no word, you'll blow up. And bring the spirit and the word together, you'll grow up. So you want to grow up in this dynamic of the Christian life. And so as we look at these supernatural things, as a Calvary Chapel, we're a charismatic church. By the way, do you know the difference between a Pentecostal and a charismatic? A Pentecostal says the only evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. That's a, that's a Pentecostal definition. A charismatic believes in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but not that everybody has all those gifts, right? So we believe in all the gifts, but there's some here who have the gift of tongues. How many of you have the gift of tongues, like me? Okay, there's a handful of us here. And, and then everybody has a bunch of other gifts, right? That's, you're not a second. In Pentecostal circles, you are a second-class citizen if you don't speak in tongues, right? My assistant pastor for 23 years was in a Pentecostal church for 12 years and could never become a member because he never had the gift of tongues and he wasn't willing to fake it. <laughs> Mind-blowing. He's one of the most godly guys I know. He had a lot of other gifts, but those gifts were not appreciated because you've got to you have the one. Now, having said that, Peter now is going to explain what's happening. They are praising God, worshiping God. It tells us in verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let us be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's only nine in the morning. It's hard to get drunk at nine in the morning unless you've stayed up all night. I'm sad to say I have been drunk at nine in the morning, but it's a tough thing to do. You either have to get up very early or you have to stay up all night long to do that. In verse 16, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. When supernatural things happen in a Christian environment, the preacher should be able to say... This that you're experiencing is what the Bible teaches, and that's what he does here. He takes us to the prophet Joel, and he says, It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and my servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. So the Holy Spirit's given to the church as a gift. It's poured out upon us. And it's for our sons and our daughters, and old men are going to dream dreams, and young men are going to see visions, and it's on my men servants and my maidservants. Everybody that's a Christian empowered by the Spirit of God has gifts of the Holy Spirit to use for God's glory. It's a beautiful thing, not only for me in my life and what God's Spirit is doing in me and the gifts that he's given me, but to see the gifts of the Spirit in my son and daughter's life. They also both speak in tongues, and they have various gifts. My wife does not speak in tongues, but she has wonderful other gifts. So it doesn't matter, it's just like, hey, just whatever gifts God gives you, enjoy those gifts, right, and use them for his glory. But notice this. This is a specific time and space that God said he's going to pour out his spirit. And that's exactly what he does. And it says, in the last days. Now, you'll hear this term a lot in eschatology or end-time study, the last days. I wanted to define for you scripturally what are the last days. Some people think it's just right the days before Jesus comes back again. That's not correct. Because Joel prophesies here, he says, in the last days, the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out. So when did the last days start? On Pentecost. That's when it started. And then how far is it going to go? How, how long is God's spirit going to be doing this work? Until, it says, verse 19, I will show wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the last days are from Pentecost uh, When the Holy Spirit's poured out and the church is born, all the way till Jesus comes again, because the last verses describe the great tribulation period of time at the end of the age. So we are now 2,000 years closer to that part, which is pretty crazy, and watching what is unfolding. But as Peter explains this, he now is going to apply it to their lives personally. So you go, so what? What are you talking about, this Pentecost and tongues? and I just came here because somebody promised me lunch. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Peter, like all good preachers, he starts meddling in their own hearts. He takes all of this and he says to them very specifically, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. He said, you guys are all here. It's only been 50 days. They didn't have social media, but let me tell you, the word was out that Jesus, who they thought was the Messiah, the miracle worker, raised the dead, healed the blind, uh, healed the lame, walked on water, all of these things, fed the 5,000, fed the 4,000. And the word was out, not only that he was crucified, these people were a part of saying crucify him and free Barabbas, but then Jesus rose from the dead. It's only, it's less than two months from the event. He's talking to a group of people, thousands of people, that are acutely aware of the headline news about what happened to Jesus. And he said, you guys, you crucified him. You're the ones. He calls him on the carpet. You and I, if you're gonna get serious about your own heart and your own sin, you have to see your part in seeing Jesus nailed to the cross because you see your sin took him there. I don't mean the person on your right or your left. I mean yours. Your sin, your failure, my sin, my failure. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Even when I wasn't seeking God, God was seeking me. God came in it, and Peter tells him two incredible truths that are in tension. He says that according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, it was God's plan to send his son to die on the cross for the sins of the world. That was a predetermined plan on God's part. But you, you crucified him. God's plan to save and redeem mankind was not a reason or excuse or an escape from those whose responsibility it was that put him on the cross. You see, every single person has a part at the cross. People try to kid themselves that if they, if, if they were there, they wouldn't say crucify him. Really? Do you remember a time when your heart was hard towards God and you wanted nothing to do with God? You remember that person? That person that wanted nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with God's church? It's the same kind of person that tells me, you know, why did Eve take the fruit? If I would have been there, I wouldn't have eaten it. I'm like, dude, you can't even go down the road obeying the speed limit, let alone eating something you want. And you're going to be the guy that, oh, you know, when I get to, when I get to heaven, I'm going to punch Adam right in the mouth. <laughs> Let me tell you, you've had a lifetime of your own Adam moments, your own thoughts, your own words, your own actions, everything you've done. And the beauty of this is I own my own culpability in the death of my Savior that I realize he took my place and he is my substitute. And they drove those spikes through his hands and his feet and they should have been mine. There's nothing more humbling to me than a naked, crucified man that gave his life for me. Nothing more humbling. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. And people are like, I'm unworthy, I don't deserve it. Well, join the club. Is Is there any club that has any members that says, I'm worthy of that kind of sacrifice? Absolutely not. That's why... The ground at the foot of the cross, it's level. It's level for the religious hypocrite and the prostitute down on Sunset Strip. It's a level ground. I don't care how morally good you are in this life. If you don't have Christ in your heart, you're going to miss heaven by 18 inches. The reality is... Of the cross, and Peter now brings this to them. He said, you know, you guys are looking at listening to these people speak in tongues, and you see the tongues of fire on their head, and you hear the sound of this mighty rushing wind. But let me tell you, what are you going to do about it? How does the gospel affect you personally? How have you received it? Now, in this next section is a long section from verse 25 through 36 that he now quotes David about the resurrection and the power of that. That's a great passage, but for the sake of our time, we're going to look At verse 37, at the response of the people. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? That's a great question, isn't it? When you realize what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. You see, I never got the gospel as a kid. My grandparents on both sides of my family are Baptists. They brought us to church. Uh, My uh, grandma and grandpa Brown went to a little free will Baptist church, and uh, my grandma and grandpa Jones, they went to this first Baptist church, um, about seven miles apart, one in Buell Idaho, one in Filer, Idaho, and and as a grandkid, I would get drugged to church sometimes. I tell people I did have a drug problem, and uh, they drugged me to church, and I never got it. Like, you know, my grandma, she was at the one, she, she would sing her head off, and she she really didn't have a great voice, and that was the only thing I left church with. Like, I don't get this. And they had a very fiery preacher there, Brother Jack, and he had a handkerchief out, and he would sweat, and you're going to be taken to the fires of hell. The bowels of hell are going to swallow you up, I remember, a five-year-old killer. Like, Man, sounds scary. I didn't know hell had bowels, but hell has bowels. And And then my... My other grandparents, their church was a little bit more sedate than that. But my, my, my other grandmother, she would, they would have this contest called pack Sunday. And so pack Sunday, you invite everybody. And my grandma would always win because she was very competitive. And, but I never got it. And my grandparents had Bibles at the house, and they had scriptures on the wall. And all I knew, this is what I generally knew as a kid growing up. The Bible's God's word. And Jesus is the Savior, but I don't know how that worked with the cross and all that business. I just really didn't get it. And one day when I was 13 years old, I was in church with my dad. Once again, he drug me to church. And the preacher for the first time explained what Jesus had done for me. I can still picture it in my mind at the age of 13. He said, Jesus stretched out his hands in love for you and received the spikes through his hands for you. And his feet, they drove the spikes through his feet. And it was all the punishment for your sin that he died. But he rose from the dead and he conquered death. And at the age of 13, the light bulb went on for the first time that I actually understood what Jesus did for me. And I went, oh, snap. I was terrified because now i got to make a decision. And I ran from God. I wanted nothing to do with God. I'm like, this is terrifying. Oh, no. I used to, up till 13, I'd go, I don't get this whole mumbo-jumbo thing. I don't get it. You know, I just don't get it. But at 13, I'm like, I totally get it, and I want to live in sin. So I did to the age of 19. I only have one regret in my life. I should have a lot because my life was filled with sin, so a lot of those things are regretful. But I only have one real regret that I didn't surrender to my Savior at the age of 13 sure would have saved myself a lot of heartache. It's this cut-to-the-heart moment that the crowd, through Peter's preaching, is they're cut to the heart and they said, what should we do? So he tells them in verse 38, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Everything you're seeing right now in the work of the Holy Spirit, you're going to receive that. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Nothing like perfect timing. It's the alarm that somebody put it in their phone, the preacher should be done by this time. (laughs) Set the alarm, maybe that'll help him out. You know, sometimes a preacher takes off his watch and puts it on the podium. You know what that means? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. So he says you need to repent. That means to change your mind and change your direction. You're walking in your own self-centeredness. Now turn towards God and ask him what he has for you. Start walking with Jesus. Be baptized because that's an outward demonstration of the faith that's already taken place in your heart. And he says through this conversion of your life, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, he's not given a formula like, you know, you repent and right now you get baptized and then the Holy Spirit's going to come. Because when we get to chapter 10 in the book of Acts, Cornelius, the Holy Spirit falls upon those who believe in Jesus before they're baptized. So the Lord likes to mix it up for those who love little formulas. He likes to say, no, 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 that's not the issue. The issue is, you, do you believe in Jesus? Have you publicly confessed Jesus through baptism? And have you received the power of the Holy Spirit? Because that promise is to you, it's to your children, it's to those who are far off, anywhere in the globe. It doesn't matter where I've traveled around the world, people are filled with the Holy Spirit and they love Jesus and the hope of the gospel. And he said, "And those who are far off, and as many as the Lord our God will call, as many people as God is calling into his family, you're welcome to come, you're welcome to be forgiven, you're welcome to receive Christ." I meet people sometimes they get really hung up. Somewhere along the line, they heard about this predestination thing that the Bible clearly teaches. And somehow, somehow it it messes them up about their own free will. And you know, these these two things are intentional, just like Peter said, it was by the determined foreknowledge of God that Jesus died on the cross. That was God's plan, right? But they had a personal responsibility. And God's plan is he he knows the future. He has foreknowledge. So he sees your life down through the ages. And people say, well, what if I'm not predestined? I say, first of all, that's a family secret that an unbeliever has no business because all you need to do is come to Christ. You don't need to worry about that. You know, there's like this doorway that says, the whomsoever will come, he'll receive you. And you go through that doorway, and then you look back over your shoulder, and it says, predestined before the foundations of the world. You see the invitation to the free will is just hey you just respond to God. You don't know anything about it. That's well, how do I know if I'm predestined? I said well let's pray right now and you'll receive Christ and, and you'll you know you're well if I don't I guess well I guess you're not. I just mess with them a little bit. Right. But the understanding that people get tripped up in theological issues rather than just coming to the person of Jesus and Jesus save me. Forgive me. Wash me. I'm a mess. I need your help. Now, after that conversion experience happens, then growth has to take place. So, so how do we grow? They go on. In verse 40, it says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted to them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Don't we live in a perverse generation? Right? Is anything new under the sun? 2,000 years have went by. You know what? This generation is perverse. This shooting in Texas has broken our hearts. Right? I was listening to Jordan Peterson or reading his book, 12 Rules for Life, and he was talking about nihilism, and right now, around the globe, people are hopeless and despair, and then they take their own life. They have this nihilistic attitude, those who don't come to God. Because if you remove the Lord from the pictures, like, what is the hope, right? And he said, but what's shocking is that there's not more of, and this was prior to this Texas thing. He said, when you see these mass shootings... He said, it's surprising there's there's not more of that because most people that get filled with despair, they're personally filled with despair and then they just go take their own life. But people that are filled with despair and bitterness say, I'm going to take as many as I can with me and then take my own life. And he said, that's what the shocker is that more people don't do it because people are filled with despair and hopelessness and emptiness. We live in a perverse generation, and until you embrace that and realize, hey, man, right now the, the entrance age of uh, pornography addiction is 11 to 13 years of age. So you get a smartphone, 11 years of age. Now, obviously, the 50- and 60-year-old are struggling with porn, too. But the reality is these things are accessible from a button, right? You, these things of, of sexuality. That draw us into dark places. Peter is talking to a group that knows and understands their perverse generation. We also live in a perverse generation that needs Jesus and needs the hope of Christ. But this is how they grow daily. Verse 41 Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and then this, they began to grow. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and breaking of bread and in prayers. Church is really simple, you guys. Get together, sing a few love songs to Jesus, teach the Bible for a while, have communion together, hug each other, share with each other uh, about your lives, pray with one another, and that's church. And it can be four or five people in a boat in the middle of the river, or it can be us gathering here together. It's, it's, church is simple, but you know, God takes the, the power of heaven, the Holy Spirit, and pours it through that simplicity to change people's lives. You know, if you come to church, how many times has that happened to you? You come to church, and you're struggling in your life, or you're struggling in your marriage, or you're struggling with a, a teenager or at work, wherever it is, and you come in, and you have been in so knotted up all week long, and you come in, and you get your eyes on the Lord, and you start worshiping him, and then you hear the word of God, And then you see some people that know and love you enough that you can actually sit down and cry with and share with them about what's going on and pray together. And you leave a transformed person than who you were when you came in. That's the gift and the power of God, of his spirit, of his people through the, the church of the Lord. That hope is for each one of us. And if you're walking in it, what a blessing. But oftentimes people are seeking we had this guy coming to our church for a while at Water Springs in Idaho Falls, and he really concerned me. He had a real dark countenance about him. He literally wore a trench coat a few Sundays, which is always a bad sign, and uh, uh, you, can, you can hide a lot under a trench coat. So I had our ushers watching him. We didn't have sheepdogs, but uh, basically everybody in Idaho is a sheepdog in packs. So it's <laughs> woe to the person that pulls a gun in Idaho. It'll be okay corral but anyway he was coming he was coming week after week and he would get up in the middle of the service abruptly and then he would just kind of walk around the hallways of church and he was this rest you could just tell there was a spiritual battle going on this dude that was obvious to all and it was a black cloud then he came in this one sunday and he was radiant he was a different guy no trench coat, big smile on his face. First time he looked like that, he used to—he would avert his eyes. He would never look at me in the eye as he had walked by me. First time he looked me right in the eye and walked right up to me, he said, Pastor, i got to tell you what happened to me. I said, I'd love to hear it. Because <laughs> I'm like, whoo, praise Jesus. You know, I was never afraid. I mean, still not afraid to this day. If somebody comes in and shoots us up, I just want to make sure they're a good shot. Because I don't mind going to heaven, but I do not want to be wounded. So it's like, if they came up here with a gun, I would just, wait, I don't know if you're get good shot, let me take a step towards you, let's just get this, <laughs> right, here's the spot, you know, get it done, finish me off, no wheelchairs, okay, anyway, he said, I got to tell you what's going on, he said, for seven Sundays in a row, he said, I'm an Iraq vet, and he said, I've struggled ever since I came back from war, he said, I have PTSD, I just, I'm, I'm a mess, I'm an emotional mess, I'm in a dark mess, and that's what you could see on him, and and he said, But last Sunday I gave my life to Christ. I finally surrender. And he changed my life. And that's that's wonderful, but that's not even the, the mind-blowing part of the story. He said, Every Sunday, for seven Sundays, I took my revolver, put a round in it, spun it, cocked it, and prayed, Lord, if you don't want me to go to church today at Water Springs, blow my head off. And he put it in his mouth and pulled the trigger. He did that seven Sundays in a row. You don't have to be a brilliant mathematician. To know the odds of that. He said on that seventh Sunday I came to church and I gave my life to Christ. That Sunday I was talking about the man of Gadara that was demon possessed with a legion. And I prayed for people at the end that they'd be set free from the demons. And the legion of demons. They're wanting to destroy them and suicide just like the hogs that ran down the cliff and ran in. And that was the whole sermon. And it was the one that broke through all of the darkness to set him free. The next Sunday, he came in with that radiant smile, and he said, Pastor, I just wanted to follow up with you and let you know, it's probably not a good thing for me to have a gun. I gave mine away. <laughs> like, Praise God. For you, that's, that's a good deal, right? If your Sunday practice is to put a gun barrel in your mouth, I would say, let's, let's get rid of that gun for this season of life, right? But most people's lives are not so dramatic, right? You're just this person struggling with your heart, struggling with your life. Like this church kid that was so responsible, he got hooked up with a girl that was doing drugs. And he was actually a pastor's kid, and he, I knew him for years. He didn't go to our fellowship, but he came, and he was distressed, and he almost took his life that week. And he, he said, Pastor... This girl, she sp- spent all my money, she took all my money, she s- just robbed him blind. And he said, now they're going to take my trailer. He lived in a trailer park, and this trailer, I mean, literally was worth like $15,000. And he was going to have to file bankruptcy or give, give back, go default on the thing. And I said, you're going to take your life because they're gonna, you're, you're going to get a default on your $15,000 trailer? Yeah, I've never missed a bill in all of my life for him. That was like the end of the world. He was going to take his life. You know, for some people, you never know what it is that's going to push them to a place of absolute despair. Sometimes it's just the heartbrokenness of a bad marriage. But I want you to know that no matter what season you're in, the power of God's Spirit to come in and bring His love and His joy and His peace is available to you. And His cleansing from any sin that you've sinned Everything was nailed to the cross. You sit here, if you believe in Jesus, you sit here today 100% perfect and forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the positional reality of your walk with Jesus. And it's so freeing, isn't it? You come in with this burden, I've blown it, I've blown it, messed up this week, and you leave with just a reminder of Jesus' blood that is so powerful to wash away your sin. And this is the most powerful thing in my life. Jesus is a better Savior Than I am a sinner. No matter how much I've fallen short, he's always a bigger Savior than my blunders. May God meet us in a way that refreshes us and strengthens us by his Spirit to be the source of power to transform us day by day into the image of our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that by your Spirit, you do a fresh work in our hearts, fresh work in our lives. Lord, I know that there are those who are here, and they're just brokenhearted right now. They're just in a place of despair. And a lifeline of hope that is an anchor for our soul, Lord Jesus. I just want you to cast that from heaven as a source of hope for them this morning. So we're just in an attitude of prayer. Maybe you don't even have the words to express it. Just encourage you pray along with me just pray after me open your heart and let's pray together Lord Jesus please forgive me for being so far from you I desperately need you Would you cleanse me from my sin Would you fill me with your holy spirit Would you fill me with your love your joy and your peace Lord, strengthen me today to walk with you day by day. Be my Savior. Be my hope. Be my refuge. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.